For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening. I wanted to let you all know about Behind the Knife's brand new suture practice kit, not time board, and detailed how-to videos. So we put this resource together to ensure that anyone learning surgical skills is ready to dominate the day. The suture kit contains everything you need, including high-quality surgical instruments, multiple different types of suture, and a best-in-class suturing pad. The Knot-Tine Simulator has features for beginners and for those with more advanced skills. The simulator includes a freestanding hook that's ideal for high-repetition knot-tine practice, a hook that is set within a cylinder that replicates tine knots in a deep body cavity, and adjustable bands to simulate tie knots under tension. We're also particularly proud of our 16 how-to videos for both right and left-handed learners. These are high-quality videos that take you through key surgical skills step-by-step. The videos cover a number of high-yield topics including common instruments, knot tying skills, subcuticular suturing, and how to close a port site, among others. Check out the show notes or head to our website at BehindTheKnife.org for more information. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm here with our surgical education fellow, Dan Sheese, who is also heading us up on this wonderful innovation series. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Mark Peel. He's a pediatric critical care physician at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he's medical director for our Wake Med mobile critical care transport team. Now, Mark is founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical, which is a company that focuses on improving resuscitation and shock sepsis and trauma. And, and he's previously had some big positions at Wake Med. He was a medical director of uh, the Children's Hospital. He helped get the Children's Hospital up and off the ground and was formerly director of pediatrics at all of Wake Med as well. He's got numerous departments of defense gr- uh, grants, and uh, he's really looked uh, deeply into the development of technology to improve trauma care. And Mark's also the founder of the Samaritan Health Center which is a clinic for the homeless and uninsured in Durham, North Carolina as well. So the guy is very busy. Mark, welcome to Behind the Knife. Thanks, Patrick and Dan, for inviting me. So we are going to talk about life flow today. Uh, but before we do so, why don't we talk about some cases that highlight um, the need for something like life flow. So I, I know you've got a few good ones that you and I have talked about before. Let's hear them. Yeah, sure. Um, and so... I think we want to make the the focus here more about innovation in general than than a specific thing or product. But I'll I'll tell you a couple of stories that will uh, uh, begin to make the point about why innovation might be important. And the kind of index case for me that led me to think is there a better way of providing trauma resuscitation was a about a ten year old we flew in uh, to our hospital years ago, and interestingly, Patrick. Um, the trauma bay was full. There were so many casualties that we took this one by uh, air medical transport straight to the ICU. 
and so didn't have the benefit of the full trauma team down in the trauma bay because it was already full. She was bleeding internally, externally, um, and we felt that we struggled to provide adequate resuscitation with blood products. We didn't have access. We didn't have uh, a tool to get the blood into her quickly. And that child sadly died in, in my hands. And I walked away thinking there's got to be some better way that a provider, wherever they are, in the moment the blood is needed, can get it into that patient. And so if you fast forward to now where we have created something that, that facilitates that, I'll tell you a couple stories from our own center and from centers around the country. Uh, one that is, is prominent for me as a kid, 14-year-old who... Um, ran his dirt bike into a telephone pole. Um, his friends described that he sat up at the scene, blood pouring out of his helmet, pulled the helmet off, and half of his skull came with it. He then collapsed in a pool of blood, was found by the uh, medics, APNIC, with a GCS of three, and transported to our trauma bay where he was hypotensive and APNIC. And again, interestingly, too many patients in the trauma bay. He was taken to the other side of the ED where we had didn't have the equipment to resuscitate quickly with a Belmont or something like that. And um, he was able to receive a liter of LR while we were waiting on the whole blood rapidly with a life flow to get his pressure to a, to something above 70. Another couple of units of whole blood while he was intubated straight up to the OR. Um, had his skull fracture and subdural uh he repaired, went to my ICU for a couple of days. We extubated him in, in a couple, in two days and he walked out a healthy kid. And I think the, the, the point there is that TBI plus hypotension plus hypoxia equals death. And that rapid management, circulation first management of that patient who was in hemorrhagic shock with a, with a technique to give him blood quickly helped make the difference. Obviously, obviously there were a lot of people that played a role in his outcome, but it helped make the difference. Um, another interesting one, we have a lot of uh, folks that are using our device in pre-hospital uh, trauma resuscitation. And um, I think a lot of folks have the idea that we should not stay and play in trauma care in the field. And I, I agree with that. And I know that um, getting the patient to your hands in the trauma bay is probably the most important thing we can do. But critical care, and in particular, hemorrhagic shock resuscitation can take place on the ground, near the point of injury, and in transport rapidly. And so I'll tell you one or two stories there. So this one occurred um, not too long ago. A guy who's trying to open the valve of a welding um, torch oxygen tank was hitting the valve with a hammer and knocked the valve off and the, and the canister exploded. And he immediately lost an arm and a leg. Was found by the EMS crews as they arrived in hemorrhagic shock, unresponsive, and then shortly thereafter, uh, experienced a full traumatic arrest, a cardiac arrest. He got um, uh, tourniquets placed, he got CPR started, and he got an IO placed and then received a couple of units of whole blood there on the scene and in the five minute transport flight that he had to the trauma center and was resuscitated with ROSC in that short transport. Um, lived and maybe didn't walk out of the hospital, but made it out neurologically intact uh, not too long after that. And so the ability to rapidly resuscitate someone in severe hemorrhagic shock near the point of injury also is, is, a, is a technology that's we've not had before. And I think that, that our device uh, begins to provide to our pre-hospital uh, uh, providers. So um, let's just do one more. There's a 
Patrick, you actually helped me on one of my podcasts uh, called Real Emergency um, discuss a case. And so if you're listeners, we can we can provide a link to that later, but it's Real Emergency, R-E-E-L, Emergency. And this guy, and by the way, we have permission to share this story uh, publicly. This guy uh, was shot in a home invasion in his garage and was found by the paramedics with one ballistic wound in his left shoulder, hypotension in the 80s, and stating, I'm going to die. Found to have crepitus throughout his left chest and neck. As he, as he was moved into the ambulance, uh, became unresponsive and more hypotensive. And one of the providers in that uh, ambulance crew stated out loud, um, this patient is going to die of hemorrhagic shock if we intubate him, correctly stated that. And recognized that they had minutes, <clears throat> not the whole transport, but minutes to provide resuscitation and get him stable enough to put an advanced airway in. And so they were able to get in a couple units of whole blood warmed rapidly, um, again, facilitated by the LifeLow device uh, so that they could stabilize this pressure to the low hundreds. Um, they actually were able to do a uh, finger thoracostomy and evacuate that hemoneumothorax, safely intubate him. He was then flown to your old center uh, in downtown Houston, Patrick, where he went straight to the OR and had his definitive procedure and also walked out healthy. And again, the idea that minutes matter in pre-hospital care for severe hemorrhagic shock or even in the ED for severe hemorrhagic shock, I think that that story is told. And, and the idea I had early on was I didn't do this well. We didn't have the tools to resuscitate that patient well. How can we do it better? And I think we've uh, developed an innovation that, that certainly helps in some of those cases. That case, Patrick, is published uh, not too long ago, I believe in 2022, in pre-hospital emergency care, and we'll put that link up. All right. So, Dr. Peel, um, thank you for sharing those cases. And sure. I know you've hinted at life flow, um, but before we jump into this innovation here, I, uh, if you just want to comment on, I know you've been a big advocate for circulation-first resuscitation. And if you go into PubMed, look up your name, You know, there's definitely some publications out there with your name on them that we can also include in our show links as well. Now, as a, cer uh, as a surgical trainee, we all sit through ATLS and are taught about the progression through the primary survey, starting with airway being the first step. Can you explain just further what circulation first resuscitation is and why you feel that this is important when dealing with these hemodynamically unstable trauma patients that are just crashing in front of us? Sure. And, and obviously airway is important and I love practicing and teaching and thinking about airway management. But in a patient with hypovolemic shock, of which hemorrhagic shock is the most important category, the introduction of an advanced airway can cause harm if it's, if it's done too early. And the mechanisms of that are several. One is potentially the medications we use for induction if they're used. Two, uh, the introduction of positive pressure into the thorax in someone who's hypovolemic can further diminish venous return and lead to hypotension, which is bad for everything, but particularly for TBI, or lead to cardiac arrest. And then as we sedate and paralyze someone, we take away that thoracic pump, that negative inspiratory force that the patient exerts, further in, in, uh, impairing their uh, venous return. So attention to getting some volume into the patient early before we introduce advanced airway, particularly an endotracheal tube, I think is key and is a lesson we should be thinking about in all of our severely injured trauma patients. 
And there's a bunch of good data that supports that. There aren't randomized trials of CAB versus ABC yet, but there's a lot of anecdote and a lot of evidence um, that supports the idea that we should at least think about circulation as quickly and as importantly as we do on, on airway management and provide basic airway maneuvers, certainly suctioning oxygen, uh, oral airway, BVM, something um, as we're pre prepping to intubate, but, but volume resuscitating quickly first, I think can make a big difference. All right. So with that in mind, uh, we've talked a lot about this innovation and that innovation is called life flow. So Mark, what, what is life flow? How does it work? What are some of the finer points? Yep. So it arose out of the idea that we used to, in pediatric resuscitation, take simply take a syringe and a stopcock. We couldn't use a Belmont. Pressure bag didn't work well. We had small access or IOs. We'd take a syringe and a stopcock, pull the blood from the, from the bag, administer it to the patient repetitively um, with the repetitive strokes of the syringe. And that works. We've done it for years. We've used it for blood fluid plasma in lots of environments through lots of types of access. It's in fact what a number of military teams will use in the field to administer blood rapidly to, to casualties when they don't have other equipment, a, simply a syringe and stopcock stop or push and pull technique. And what I thought about was that's hard to set up. People don't always understand it. Why not just convert that into a simple handheld thing that with one hand I can actuate the syringe and when I release the handle, uh, it refills automatically through a, through an automatic check valve. And that's simply what life flow is. It's like a caulk gun. I deliver fluid forward to the patient or blood. I release the handle, it fills again. And then I can, through repetitive strokes, give about a 500 mil whole bag, whole blood unit in about a minute or a minute and a half. Not that everyone always needs it that fast. Not that they always need that much but it allows us to rapidly provide that early initial resuscitation and immediately test dose and response. Did that patient respond to the volume I gave? Is the heart rate coming down? Is the blood pressure coming up? Is the perfusion better? And if I'm prepping to intubate and I wanna get volume into the patient first, how do we realistically do that when we don't have time to get the central line in the Belmont setup and other things going in the trauma bay? Or how does a medic in the field realistically do it when they don't ever have that equipment? And this simply allows an intuitive way of someone to spike the fluid or blood that they want to use, find uh, adequate access, whether that's IV or IO, and get that initial volume in quickly. That's simply what LifeFlow does. Yeah, and it's almost a bespoke approach to resuscitation, uh, whereas sometimes we use a more ham-fisted kind of approach with Belmonts, and um, this, is, this is personalized in a major way in terms of you being able to repeatedly uh, assess that patient and give uh, blood oftentimes just enough, uh, almost in this vein of damage control resuscitation, right? We are giving enough to maintain perfusion and uh, not too much that we're quote unquote blowing the clot. Exactly. Exactly. That's something that, it, that struck me about, about life flow is that it's again, a, a more nuanced approach, uh, but also it's, it's easy to use. There's no uh, in the original device or, or the simplest way you use it, there's no batteries, right? You don't right. need power. You don't need to plug it in. Uh, right. The Belmont requires and, and other pumps require uh, power. So right. where should and where do you envision life flow being utilized most effectively in what setting? Well, one that we found most effective is in pre-hospital, right? So we, we will 
soon have data presented on mortality improvements in severely injured patients with penetrating thoracic trauma and hypotension, where paramedics are able to quickly resuscitate with a couple units of blood and, by the way, get in their TXA and calcium without impacting already short transport times of around eight minutes. It's pretty astounding. And bring that patient to the hospital in a better state. So they roll through the trauma bay doors more awake with a better shock index, with better perfusion, and give the trauma team a little more time to think about what's next. I think there's plenty of big trauma centers, Travis, uh, Patrick, where you do work and have worked where the, the team is effective in immediately providing good resuscitation through the equipment you have, like the Belmont. But that doesn't always work precisely. It's not always in working order. The person that knows how to use it is not always there. And many, many, many emergency departments don't have such equipment where they may nevertheless encounter a bleeding trauma patient, a GI hemorrhage, a, a woman with delayed postpartum hemorrhage, you name it. There are a lot of cases where we don't have all the tools and team of 20 people trauma team ready in their gowns and gloves, ready to go the minute that patient rolls through the door. And so I think there's lots of places where we can use another technique. Lastly, I would say we have a lot of austere environments in the hospital, and those include the path from the trauma bay to the CT scanner, or the path from the trauma bay to the OR, or up in our ICU or on the wards. And so I think there are a range of, certainly a range of environments where resuscitation tools aren't always adequate currently. Yeah, and, and to your last point there, Austere environments within the hospital are a real thing. And uh, we had a patient recently who rebled from their splenic injury and getting access alone, blood, but also the tools to administer that blood uh, up to the patient's floor when you're in a, in a major hospital, even uh, let alone in a far forward environment, you know, perhaps on a, on a, in the military setting, that can be challenging. And again, this is a simple, a simple tool that allows you to deliver that blood quickly. Doesn't solve all problems, but it can solve some in the moments when you really need it. Sorry, Dan. And, and to further to further look into this for people who may not be as familiar with this, what what kind of access does the patient need from the patient side in order to have this life flow hooked up to it? Yeah. So obviously the bigger the better, but it was designed to engage with smaller gauge access that we typically find. So um, it's actually approved to give blood through as low as a 22 fluids through as low as a 24 gauge IV. Um, uh, people are using it uh, with IOs, humeral head, femoral, tibial. And uh, yes, their peripheral would be, I say, be the most common uh, access point, Dan. It, through which our standard methods, a pressure bag, a Belmont, whatever, often don't work that well, to be honest. And um, so an active resuscitation where I'm giving that dose of fluid or blood and watching the response even though I have narrow gauge IV access is, is one of the advantages. It's truly remarkable innovation. Let me add one more thing. So kind of my first uh, love clinically is pediatric trauma, even though I'm not a surgeon. Um, it's the biggest killer of kids. And it's a place where I really appreciate the teamwork of multiple specialties, the surgeons, the ICU docs, the ER, the nurses, and uh, we can make a big difference. Uh, and one of the biggest barriers uh, to effective resuscitation is getting blood, is recognizing that a child needs blood and then getting it in. And so number two, the single biggest risk factor for death in a, tr in a, in a child with uh, traumatic injury 
is hypotension on presentation to the ER, 12-fold risk of death. And so if those two things are true, we have trouble getting the blood in and those kids are the most at risk of death, should we not have more effective ways of providing resuscitation the moment they hit the door? And so I, I think that's what led me to this innovation concept in the first place. And um, we're seeing it work and it's uh, fun to be a part of it. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. So to further kind of talk about and transition this more into the innovation side, um, can you touch upon the timeline and all the processes you, you've gone through to take this innovation and bring it into the state that it is now? So walking us through the process of building the team to bring your idea yes. uh, together, obtaining patents, FDA approval, and then yep. clinical trials? Yes. And so just to be clear, I knew nothing about any of that at the beginning. I just had kind of an idea and sat on it for a while, was encouraged by some other friends to say, why don't you move that forward? But I didn't know how. Um, as Patrick knows, we're in a big community hospital that's academic affiliated, but it's not a university hospital. And at the time we had no such thing as a tech transfer policy or any understanding of how to create innovation. So I kind of just, just as a disclaimer, I kind of stumbled my way through this. And interestingly, was connected with a group of engineering students from NC State, North Carolina State, which is down the road from our hospital, who helped me with the original prototyping and development of the, of the first model. That seemed like it might work. We sat on it again for a couple of years in the midst of busy clinical work and administrative things I was doing. There just wasn't time to create an innovation. And then I'm um, decided with another friend who'd had experience in investment and in, in, in biomedical engineering to go for it and say, let's let's create a company, let's raise a little money and see if we can make it work. And that was a big leap that if I knew how hard it would be now, if I knew now how hard it is, then I might not have done it. Okay. And so I've heard, first, I've heard that before. The first encouragement would be align yourself with folks who know what they're doing. And then the caution would be when you do that through university, there are a lot of hassles and a lot of uh, things that come along with aligning yourself with a big institution who will who will want to own and control a lot of that uh, development. So there's uh, pros and cons of any way of doing it. But we were able to raise what's called a, we were able to found a company, um, file initial IP, intellectual property, file initial patent and raise some money and say to people, hey, we've got a great idea. It's going to save a bunch of lives. Give us a million dollars and we'll make a return on that for you and uh, we'll save some lives. And so we did that, hired a, a medical device engineer. We happen to be in the Research Triangle Park here where there are lots of uh, device and drug companies and, and uh, kind of a rich environment for talent. And we hired a medical device engineer with a lot of experience and he helped us build the original prototype into a working prototype and then into something that we could pass through the FDA, which again is a huge, enormous, difficult process. Um, as you could imagine, 
giving blood in a new way uh, is complex and needs a lot of testing. And we decided getting that through the FDA first would be difficult. So we got it approved for fluids and colloids first, a little bit of a lower bar, and saw that we had a tool that was effective for resuscitating patients with septic shock, anaphylaxis, and other things. Can you expand a little bit on the FDA? Obviously, it's rigorous, uh, but can you expand a little bit on what a young innovator might expect uh, if they're trying to yeah. start playing with the FDA and try to move a product like this forward. Yeah, it's first it's a long, complex and expensive process. You can't do it on your own. There are we there are teams of folks that are that need to be involved from engineering, quality, regulatory folks who know that space, who can interact with the FDA with you, who can help you prepare a hundreds of pages document and do all the required testing and safety analyses that are that are necessary to get it through. So Patrick, it's a bigger question to discuss, but it takes a team and it takes experts who have done it before, and that obviously takes capital. Um, and so, part of the a big part of the fundraising we had to do was to actually go through that process and do all the required testing ahead of time. To be clear, we uh, used something called the five ten k pathway, which would be like saying I have a new surgical instrument that's very similar to one we already use, has this difference, and I'm going to ask that it be approved as a substantially equivalent device to the existing laparoscope that we have out there. Not something that has to go through clinical trials to get approved. So we went through as a 510K uh, substantially equivalent product. And that makes the timeline shorter and the cost a little lower, but it's still not it's still not easy. How long did it take for the blood? Uh, so from the original prototype to FDA clearance took us 18 months, which is a very sh- relatively short time in the, in the, in, in the, in the usual story of med device innovation. It was actually pretty well compressed, to be honest. Um, and then had that on the market a year or two, and obviously the desire was to, to use it for blood. We learned some lessons through the clinical use with the existing device and through some animal work and some other studies we did and redesigned it so that it would be better suited for blood products. So um, that's a, a complex path to go down and then did all the testing required, redesign testing required to make that safe and effective for blood. And that was probably another year and a half just for that that whole FDA approval process. Again, a lot of capital, a lot of investment in the R&D to make it happen, and uh, pretty complex process. Now with a much bigger staff than I had uh, to start with. And, and by the way, Patrick, back to the original story, I realized early on I couldn't be in an administrative role at a hospital and practicing and trying to lead a med device company and soon realized I got to bring someone in with an MBA and who's a real, really knows how to run a company. And many physicians end up leaving their practice to, to create their innovation. And I understand that. And that, that may be the path people choose to take. I chose to, to stay practicing because I love clinical medicine. I love taking care of patients and uh, decided I needed to give up leadership of the company myself and bring in someone who was a partner and a leader who knew what he was doing uh, when it came to uh, to running a medical device firm. So that was another turn I took fairly early on. How hard was it for you to kind of hand over a company that you, you've kind of built up from the ground and then to turn it over to somebody else? Yeah, that's such a good question. You, you end up, if you're going to raise a lot of capital, you almost have to turn over um, control to folks who are believing in you and investing in you. So that was a process that I expected. And I realized I couldn't do it all. I think this is something I'm 
I came to this later in life and probably had learned some lessons the hard way before in trying to to take on too many responsibilities in in previous lives. And I thought, yeah, there's just no way. And I'd rather give control up and have partners who can go down this path with me than try to hold on to it myself. That wouldn't have worked. And so that wasn't really a hard decision, Dan. I, I think it could be for some folks, but it wasn't really a hard decision. And and it and that you know, when you when you learn what you're good at and not good at and can kind of staff your weaknesses, can bring in folks that can augment the things you don't do well, it ends up creating flourishing for everyone involved and the institution that you're trying to lead, I believe. So trying to hold on to it myself, I think would have not been healthy for the company or for me. So you had this need, you came up with the idea, you engineered you got a viable working product that then uh, went through a number of different trials and testing before getting FDA approval. Correct. You iterated. You went back for blood approval through the FDA. Okay. A working device. Yes. Th- that's a success story in and of itself, but a lot happens after that. Correct. Uh, what have been the trials and tribulations that follow all that success in terms of getting this product out there? Yeah satisfying these folks who are now involved. You built a company, you have people that are uh, relying on the product's success. Right. Yeah. That's been, that's been, a, a, a an interesting, exciting and challenging part of the story, which is not every innovation is intuitive to everyone. I'm not saying that it's the right thing in every situation, but it works. We have many success stories. We thankfully increasingly have research data to back that up in a variety of clinical conditions. Um, But I would say overcoming provider skepticism of a new thing has been one of the biggest challenges. And that is, um, hey, what we do is now fine. Why do do we want something else? Why, Why are you giving us a new tool? Why should we bother with this? Number two, a lot of this was happening during COVID, of course. And so hospitals are stressed, budgets are tight, staff are turning over. The implementation of a new thing in that chaotic environment is very difficult. Um, on the fluids and sepsis side, there's a lot of controversy about the role of fluid in septic shock management. And many physicians, particularly EM physicians, um, I think have a bias that yeah, we we actually hurt people with fluids. That's what I've heard. I don't I don't want, I don't want anything that's going to give a lot of fluid, so I don't need to talk to you. Whereas the data point to um, the truth that if you have someone in shock and you, re- you reverse that shock early, and I mean by early, I mean minutes, not hours, with a modest amount of fluid, you can improve their outcome and then stop giving it. Patrick, you and I know in the ICU, we probably give too much fluid. That's where we can cause harm. In those first minutes of care, when someone presents in sepsis in the ED or in the ambulance or even on the floor, treating them quickly is important. And doing it quickly is often hard. And so I think we have a solution that helps with that, but encountering the skepticism around fluid resuscitation in general was something I didn't expect, honestly, and have had to counter. In fact, I'll I'll add this link to our show notes. I just did a webinar yesterday called uh, Challenging the, Fluids, uh, the Fluid Confusion, where I go over all the evidence for that. And then on the trauma side, um, I think we've done things how we always do them. There may be cases where yes, current practice is incredibly effective and fast and no nothing new is needed. But as the 
as you and I discussed, there are situations where we are not effective at, at getting someone out of hemorrhagic shock quickly. And there are controversies in the literature, like you mentioned. Am I going to overdo it and pop the clot? Am I going to cause harm by giving too much blood? And that's not what I'm advocating at all. I'm advocating early effective resuscitation to minimal endpoints until we can stabilize the patient further and get them to definitive care. And so I think I've had to try to become more of an expert on the literature and I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I'm trying to become one and then trying to produce a lot of studies to convince people that this concept has some merit. That's been one of the biggest challenges and it's also time consuming and expensive and difficult. So um, while we hear stories from the field almost every day, hey, this is effective. We saved somebody's life. We helped a patient out. Those are great stories and those are encouragements, but um, trying to get kind of global buy-in and and change the culture of how we think about resuscitation has been a challenge that I didn't expect. I just thought, this makes sense. Everyone will like it. And that's not necessarily true. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a, that's because it's, it's, it's effective that it's a, it's an effective product that it works well. And again, to see it used in a patient who is in bad, in a bad way and needs that resuscitation immediately is something that's really fantastic. But as you mentioned, though, that it doesn't stop there. It doesn't, you can't, this success story when it comes to innovation, sure, you've made a fantastic product, but you said, you've got it through the FDA. Um, you've cleared these hurdles. But it's interesting then that even with a great idea and a great product that it doesn't necessarily guarantee uh, success. No. And if you think about how how hospitals work and the complexity of them, implementing any new thing and providing the required education and changing protocols and making sure all our staff know about it and why to use it and when and what the risks are and what type of IV access, like you asked, Dan, there's a million things that have to be done to implement any new technology. And again, that probably I underestimated, I underestimated at first the complexity of that task and the complexity of the hospital environment and the chaotic situations in which we live in providing emergency and critical care. So um, I love that space. Uh, There's opportunities for improvement. Just if any of your listeners are thinking about creating innovation there, just realize it's a it's a difficult world. There's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of uh, risk. And so if uh, Dan came up to you right now and said, I got this bang up idea, it's a, it's maybe something similar. It's a device in the states outside of the OR. It's used in the ED, let's say. He's going to be a pediatric surgeon and then maybe it's used for kids specifically. What if you guys sat down and you had a, a, a frank discussion <laughs> What type of guidance and mentorship would you provide knowing what you know now? Yeah. So one, I'd, that's not an infrequent occurrence that someone comes to me now and says, hey, what about this idea? And so I enjoy trying to provide some mentorship to folks on that. Um, and I, I think I often wonder how much of the reality should I tell Dan right now? Because it's going to be a hard road. But in general, I would encourage him and I'd say, go for it. And let's let's have coffee and let's discuss it and let me help you um, avoid some minefields along the way, number one. Number two, put you in touch with the people in your institution, hopefully, who are now aligned with innovation. So at our own hospital, in part out of this innovation and part out of some things some other physicians did, we now have a whole innovation center which invests in and helps and facilitates um, the movement forward of, of, of 
technology that improves patient care. And so I would, I would advise you to align yourself with some such organization to help you with all these bewildering, difficult situations like intellectual property and FDA and hospital purchasing and research design. There's a, there's just a big, huge world out there of, of complexities that you need to prepare yourself for, but I would still encourage you to do it. And I would also say, become excellent at the, at your craft, be, then be an excellent pediatric surgeon, know that field well, practice it well, love it. And out of that, find your inspiration for improving patients' lives through a new innovation. It's kind of the, the twin, the twin goals I'm trying to achieve. You know, making a device isn't the only innovation. Patrick, this very podcast is itself an innovation. I think there's lots of ways you can improve care and improve the way people care for critically ill patients. And Behind the Knife is one. So uh, thanks to you for doing it and your team. It, it, it's it's remarkable. I've listened to myself, even, even though, as I'll remind you, I'm not a surgeon, but I still love listening to Behind the Knife. It's a cool <laughs> show. So yeah, I think there's lots of ways. And I, and I would say just from an early career standpoint for Dan, I think um, variety in what you do helps you enjoy it and do it better. And so for me, a mix of, of, of clinical practice and teaching and innovation and uh, some leadership has been a, has been a, a, a joyful r- ride. You know, it's been hard, but I enjoy what I do. I think I'm made to do it and uh, I'm going to keep pressing ahead. The, the, the med device innovation part has been hard. It's probably been the hardest thing. Um, it's more difficult than the worst call night that I have trying to run a company or help run a company, but there's still been fruit from it and I'm still learning. So I guess ask me again in a year or two and see if I have any. And you strike it big, you could be our number one, uh, our number yeah. one owner. To be oh, sure. I'll give you that. There, there's another pearl then. Don't, don't go into this to strike it big. Okay. Um, I think do it for the love of, of improving care and a love of innovation. There are no guarantees. There's no guarantees. And the further you go and the, and the more money you have to, to raise. And I'm so thankful to our investors for getting us to this point in the innovation, but that ends up, you know, taking up a good a bit of the ownership of the company. And um, I, 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 there's no promise of a big return someday. The, the, we're, we're, we're in it right now. We hope there will be, but we're in it mostly for the improvement in care. Thanks to folks like you, Mark, and a lot of people, obviously that came before you kind of blazing this path. It seems like each year um, there are more and more. There's more and more focus on innovation, entrepreneurship, yep. and with that, different resources. Certainly um, at large institutions, also uh, simply online or through other private groups and networks, that innovation is at the forefront. And yep. in, you know, medicine and and healthcare in general is a very rich environment for that. And so when you talk about your loves in terms of teaching and, and being a clinician. Uh, back in the day, it was research, right? That was defined as papers and grants and, and oftentimes bench research. And yes, morphed in a lot of different ways. Yes, good and point. That includes things like, you know, clinical outcomes research is, is, is a huge field. But also this idea of innovation um, uh, has come a long way and is almost standalone or is standalone and for a lot of folks in terms of an additional um, leg to their stool in terms exactly. of their practice. And if that's, that's something point. you're passionate about, there's a lot of folks out there that'll support you and 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 guide you through it and and offer that support to allow you to be an innovator, an inventor, and all those things that again maybe were not viable that long ago. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, the the one kind of 
twist on that that I've learned that's been both that's been a challenge is when you become an innovator and have your hand in a company or product in probably the more academic circles, there tends to be skepticism then of of the motivation, okay, and the data and the stories and the outcomes. So um, I didn't anticipate that really either. I thought the folks I work with and and for the most part, that everyone has been that I work with has been uh, super helpful and encouraging. But out in the world, as I'm presenting data or ideas about uh, trauma resuscitation, the idea that I have a hand in a company, I think, can produce skepticism among folks that changes relationships in a way that have been discouraging. I I, I don't find I find that it's a separator sometimes, and I. I think Patrick, you and I have talked about this in the past. How do you walk that line between being an honest researcher and clinician and yet creating something that that is a commercial product? And that's a challenge I'm still trying to work work my way through. Uh, my main answer to that has been to be uh, very open in my disclosures every time I talk to anyone. I have an interest in this. You should take everything I say um, with the appropriate grain of salt, with the, with the appropriate bias potential that I have in what I tell you. So- Probably should have said that at the beginning, Dan. I have a bias here, but uh, just want to be open about that. Yeah. So, th- I mean, th- this is fantastic. Thank you so much, Doctor Peel, for sure. coming on and, and joining us. And, and this this was this was wonderful. We got some great lessons about circulation first resuscitation, about life flow, and about just life advice for this uh, the next innovator who's, who's coming up. So, thank you so much for for joining us today. Mark, it's fantastic. Thanks for joining us. And to everyone listening, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.